Well, we continue our studies in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and I call your attention now to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. The apostle says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is God's holy word. Let us pray. Almighty God, your Holy Spirit is the spirit of light and truth. And we remember that apart from the ministry of your Spirit, we are dull and ignorant, seeing but not perceiving. So we ask, send your Spirit of light into our minds and hearts. Illumine our souls in a true understanding of Paul's words here. Through these words of this apostle, equip us to work, to walk, no longer in the futility of our minds, but in the fullness of knowing God, in the fullness of joy and life and satisfaction in Him. For we pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Some of you probably remember that there was a heated debate a couple of months ago concerning what represents the proper attire and demeanor of a U.S. Senator. The wearing of a hoodie and cargo shorts and sneakers by one Senator from the great state of Pennsylvania is no longer permitted. The man had to be reminded that he has undergone a change. He is no longer a mere U.S. citizen. Instead, he is a distinguished U.S. Senator, and he is expected to attire himself and to conduct himself as such. That man's apparent difficulty in comprehending this truth about himself does not change its fundamental reality. In the most profound sense possible, the Christian has undergone a change and received a new wardrobe. Once he was dead in his trespasses and sins, he lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Spiritually, he was a dead man walking, but God had mercy. God joined him by faith to his risen Savior, raised him up with Christ from spiritual death to new life. 
And God has given him a new mind and a new heart and new desires. And so as this new creation, he must daily put off the old wardrobe. All those old ways of thinking and speaking and conducting himself that correspond to his old way of life. And now he must put on the new wardrobe, the ways of thinking and speaking and behaving that correspond to this new person. He actually is now in union with Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, the believer has undergone this fundamental change. And he has acquired a new wardrobe in life, and as such, he must no longer walk in the way of futility. Paul says here, in the way of emptiness and purposeless and hopelessness, instead he must walk now in the way of fullness, in the way of joy and satisfaction and hope in God. Now, sometimes we find it difficult to fully appreciate the change that we have undergone as Christians by the grace and power of God, the temptation to don the old wardrobe, the hoodie and the cargo shorts and the sneakers of the old life is strong. So Paul impresses now on us this necessity of donning the new wardrobe by contrasting two kinds of walks. First, the walk of futility. Paul warns the believers in Ephesus to no longer walk as unbelievers do in the futility of their minds. What is the futility of the mind? It is seeing, but not really perceiving reality. I think that perhaps one of the most difficult situations some of us have ever struggled with involved caring for a loved one, or maybe a friend whose mind was losing touch with reality. They thought, they perceived reality with crystal clarity, when in fact they were blind to the most basic realities of life. And Paul is referring to that condition on a spiritual level here in verses 19 and, or 17 through 19. He's describing people who may be attractive. These people may be popular, they may be highly intelligent, they may be successful, and yet for all of us they do not perceive reality clearly. They do not know that their most basic need is to experience the fullness of knowing and serving God. They walk in the futility of their minds to believe that you see when in fact you are blind is the most desperate situation imaginable. And that is the situation of those who live apart from Christ. Now remember, Paul is writing at this point to believers. So why all of a sudden is he talking about our former life apart from Christ? Why is he talking about darkness of mind and, and hardness of heart and calloused senses when apparently we've received a new life from God and we have left all of that behind? Now why look back? Shouldn't we instead be looking forward? Well, one reason is to make us rejoice. I mean, with a converted slave trader, John Newton, every Christian can sing with gratitude and sing with gladness. I was once lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Every Christian can rejoice that when he was blind, God opened his eyes. 
to perceive reality and taste the fullness of knowing God. But another reason Paul is describing this condition is to warn us. My friends, regardless of how spiritually mature we may be, none of us has gotten past our struggles with sin. Now, I'm old enough to remember that back in the 1980s, a popular thriller movie was The Terminator with Arnold Schwarzenegger. The Terminator was this murderous, robotic cyborg, and, and every time it seemed that that murderous thing was burned up or obliterated to pieces and dead and gone, some portion of it would revive. And it would come after the heroine again to get her back into its deadly clutches. But you see, that's our old self that Paul describes here. Sin enslaves the unbeliever completely. He is completely at peace with it. It's won his heart. The believer in Christ, however, has a new heart and a new mind from God. He has put off his old self. He has been given a new self so that he seeks now to walk in the ways of righteousness and holiness. The believer has resolved to walk no longer as the self-asserting, God-resisting, hard-hearted, and spiritually ignorant person he formerly was. Ah, but how soon we realize that the old self has not completely died, has it? It's just like the Terminator. Just when we thought that old self was dead and gone, it revives. And it tries to take us under its control once again. Our old self is like a, a devilish alter ego. It's a shadow self that is continually opposing and resisting and to a greater or less degree thwarting all of our attempts to walk faithfully in the ways of righteousness. Paul is reminding believers of our old self's seductive powers and its destructive ends. He's saying, beware. Now, what is the downward path of spiritual and moral decline that those who walk in futility of mind take? Paul points to three things. First, hardness of heart. The reason so many are alienated from God and darkened in their understanding, Paul says, is due to their hardness of heart. Contemporary author Chris Lungard, in an excellent little book, it's called The Enemy Within, he compares the human heart to the haunted house that you see in horror movies. He says, quote, the haunted house scares us because it hides something unknown and deadly. It has countless closed closets, cabinets, false walls, trap doors, attics, basements, corners, and shadows where the monster lies in wait, licking its chops, you have a haunted house within you, in your heart. Now, brothers and sisters, that's no exaggeration. Scripture everywhere assigns the seat of sin to the heart, while the core of man's being should be the throne of God. Sin invades and possesses it. And so the sleaziest backroom mafia deal can't compare to the deceitfulness that is one's own heart. Unless God intervenes with mercy, the heart we have from birth 
obstinately resists him and only becomes harder and harder. The second step downward, darkness of mind. Hardness of heart leads to darkness of mind and spiritual ignorance. A mind is a terrible thing to waste. And how strenuously Paul emphasizes the centrality of mind and thinking in the New Testament. And why is that? It's because the mind is the watchman of the soul. Sin works first by the deception of the mind. It's been that way since the beginning. In Genesis, Eve defended her disobedience of God, saying the serpent deceived me. And so I ate. The mind is the sentinel that God has assigned to watch over our souls by questioning and assessing and making judgments. Will this please God? Is this according to God's word? You see, if your mind is deceived, and to believing a particular sin is good and desirable, and your affections work up an appetite for it, you simply rubber stamp your consent. A pastor I know of sat across the table from an elder during a lunch meeting, and this particular elder had been considering a career in the ministry, And then, lo and behold, he unexpectedly left his wife for a younger woman. And so the heartbroken pastor pleaded with his friend, sympathized with his friend. These things are never completely one-sided. And he warned his friend not to presume upon the grace of God by choosing to live now in rebellion against him. But this elder said with unblinking eyes, I have never felt more alive. You see, that is a mind darkened by the deception of sin because of hardness of heart. The third step downward, insatiable lust. Let's follow the progression. Hardened hearts lead to darkened minds. Darkened minds lead to calloused senses. And people with callous senses greedily give themselves up to impurity. Now, yes, these straightforward words of Paul's, as offensive as they may be to some, are a warning to unbelievers of their dire situation. They are seen but not perceiving. Only God can open their eyes and awaken them. But remember... Paul is giving this warning to believers. Why do believers need such warnings? It's not hard to understand. Consider the dark places on the internet today and the snares of pornography and gambling and wasting our time. I mean, how easily we can dismiss our indulgence in such things saying, you know, nobody's getting hurt. Nobody needs to know. I can stop doing this anytime I want to. But how soon we forget that our indulgence in such things hardens our hearts and darkens our minds and makes us less sensitive to the fullness and joy of satisfaction in God. Remember what Jesus said. He said, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. That's what we want. I think most of us here, however, 
understand how sin works in regards to sexual temptation, habitual gambling, drug, and alcohol addiction. We're all familiar with that, I think. But what we may not realize is how, is how those things are just the tip of the iceberg. Do you remember the first commandment? The Lord said, you shall have no other gods before me. In that first commandment, we hear what our basic problem is. It's the first commandment because this is where we struggle. What you and I love and admire above all else is our God. Now we can put it this way. An idol is that one thing which if we lost it would make life hardly worth living at all. That thing can be family, it can be friends, it can be a career or achievements, it can be a romantic relationship, the approval of others, security, comfort, even a great political or social cause. You see, the thing that makes idols particularly difficult is that they are often good things, even necessary things. There's nothing necessarily wrong with relationships or careers or achievements or wealth. It's just that none of those things are building, big enough to build your sense of worth on. Only God can. Substitutes for God are like lying sweethearts. They promise you the world, but they fail you at your deepest need. They leave you empty. They leave you anxious. They leave you unfulfilled and thirsty and hungry. And unless God delivers you from those idols that you are prone to worship, unless you learn to find your contentment and joy and satisfaction in God, your idols will lead you to personal disintegration. My friend, you need God more than you need your spouse. You need God more than you need your children. You need God more than your success or your achievements or your wealth or your good looks or your popularity. Have you realized that? Have we reckoned with that? Augustine was one of the brightest intellects this world has ever seen. But as a young man, he was bound by the idolatry of sensuality and lust. Oh yeah, he felt convicted by God for it. But like a leopard that can't change its spots, he could not change his heart. <laughs> There's that famous prayer of his. It's wonderful in its transparency and honesty where he says... God save me from my sin, but not yet. And then God wonderfully freed him from his lust by enlightening his mind and his heart and the superior pleasures of knowing God. And, and he wrote these wonderful words, these immortal words. He says, how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me. You who are true, the sovereign joy, you drove them from me and took their place, you who are sweeter than all pleasure. My friends, denying ourselves of the indulgence of sin is liberating. It is freeing. It is rejecting a life of futility. 
to embrace a life of fullness in knowing God. The walk of futility and finally the walk of fullness. Verse 20, Paul tells the Ephesian believers they must reject the walk of futility. And why? Because they have learned Christ. Isn't that an interesting way of putting it? They have learned Christ. Now, what does that mean? We learn subjects, we learn truths, we learn about people, but what does it mean to learn Christ? Verse 21 tells us it means to hear about Christ and be taught about the life of fullness that we have in Christ. You see, becoming a Christian involves more than merely learning about Christ. It means knowing God because of the salvation that Christ has accomplished accomplished for those who otherwise walk in the futility of our minds. Now, let's just talk frankly for a moment. I ask you, do you know God? I'm not asking you if you know a lot about God and Jesus because you can't involve yourself in a church like this without learning a great deal about God and Jesus. Instead, what I'm asking you is if you know God. Now, I mean, when David says in the psalm, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you, do you have any sense at all of what David is talking about there? Or when Jesus says in the gospel, I have come that they might have life and might have it abundantly, do you have any sense at all of the life and abundance Jesus is talking about? Now, you don't have to earn this life You don't have to earn this life by becoming a religious and good person. This life, this fullness, is God's gift to you in Jesus. My friend, turn from your idols. Turn from serving all those substitutes for God that leave you empty and anxious and fretful and sad. Jesus positively commands you. He says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Oh my friend, come to Jesus. Accept the blood Jesus shed for sinners to liberate you from bondage to callous senses and a darkened mind and a hardened heart and give thanks to God and rejoice in knowing the God who is sweeter than all pleasure." Oh, my friend, that's the first step in the walk of fullness. But then in verses 22 through 24, Paul gives us three more steps we must practice in the path of fullness. First, putting off the old self. As Christians, we must put off the old self. Why? Well, that really brings us to the nub of the issue. I mean, the reason concerns our new identity now in Christ. We must practice putting off the thinking and words and deeds of the old self because God has decisively put that old self off. By his power, he has put the power of the old self over us off. I mean, the old life clings to us. It tries to reign over us. But at the end of the day, it can't because in uniting us to Christ by faith, God put off this sin-dominated lives we were living. By judging Christ in our place for our rebellion and disobedience, God put off the old life. He put off the old wardrobe. He put off the sin-dominated lives that we were living. 
And my friend, the ignorance of so many Christians of this truth about themselves cannot change its reality. God has given me a new heart and a new mind. He has given me a new desire for Him. I can never find happiness any longer in the old life, even though sadly at times I may be deceived into doing so by the relentless terminator within me. This is true, and this is why believers who have fallen back into a life of sin, of indulging sin, they are among the most miserable and wretched of all people. Another step is putting on the new self. That's the second matter. It's not just that we must put off the thinking and speaking and doing that belong to the old self. It's that we must also put on those ways that correspond to the new life that we have from God. And how must we do this? We must walk by faith and not by sight. Child of God, the Spirit of God dwells within you. You are a member of the body of Christ and as such His fullness and Spirit dwells in you. God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. And toward that end, God is now working in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. God is renewing his likeness in you in true righteousness and holiness. That represents for you the way of deepest joy and happiness now. And then finally, the renewing of your mind. Child of God, God has given you a new mind, but your mind must be continually renewed by worship, biblical instruction, support of Christian fellowship, so that you may increasingly appreciate the new creation you are in Christ and appreciate this glorious destiny God has foreordained you to. Let us walk by faith and not by sight. That's the great challenge for us. In July of 1945, the USS Indianapolis was steaming for home across the Pacific when its journey was cut short by an enemy torpedo. 900 men went into the salt water of the Pacific Ocean without fresh drinking water, without shelter from the unrelenting sun. Chief Medical Officer Lewis Haynes said that when the sun came out and you were thirsty, you just couldn't believe that crystal clear water you were floating in wasn't good to drink. But that salt water was the way of death rather than of life. There were young men who lost hope and they deliberately drank that water to die. And Haynes said he would actually smack men upside the head to stop them from drinking that poison. My friends, sometimes mercy is found in a good smack upside the head. And Paul offers one here. Like the salt water in the ocean, sin deceives us into believing it will satisfy and fill when it will only deaden and poison. 
Are you living in alienation from God because of the hardness of your heart and the darkness of your understanding and the callousness of your senses? The God smacks you on the side of your head now and he says, wake up. Trust in God's commands to you. Trust in Christ's blood shed on the cross for your sin to bring you now to God. In the words of the prophet, awake O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. But now is one awakened to new life. God calls you to daily put off the ways that belong to the old life and to put on the ways that belong to the new life because in Christ, God has made you a new creation. The ways of the old life are death. But the ways of new life are joy and hope and delight and fullness in God. Praise be to God for his grace to us in Christ. Let us pray. Almighty God, I would pray for any who are here today who are asleep in a death of sin. By the light of your spirit, awaken them to the danger of their situation. But also point them to Jesus. Jesus whom you gave for sinners walking in darkness. Jesus whom you gave on the cross for those who walk in the futility of their mind. Awaken them to their Savior. Enable them to cling to this Savior by faith to know the joy of salvation. And I would pray for all of us who are in Christ. Father, help us no longer to walk in the futility of mind that Paul speaks about here. Oh, the the flesh... The old self is enticing, it's seductive, it is relentless in its its attacks. Help us to put it off by knowing the superior pleasures of your fullness and joy. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.